Welcome to Just Thinking with hosts Dara Harrison and Virgil Walker, bringing you week-to-week cultural apologetics as well as social issues from a biblical worldview. This is Just Thinking. Let's think. We're back. It's another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. I am Virgil Walker, uh, and my dear brother Daryl Harrison is off tonight. So I'm flying solo. And while I always look forward uh, to our conversation and the topic that we're going to discuss tonight, I, I always say the same thing whenever I fly solo, and that is I do not enjoy going solo without my brother Daryl. Uh, there's a reason for that, man. He uh, is just a, a joy. Whenever you guys get a chance to listen to the podcast, my hope is that you experience the fun that we have with one another as we engage specific topics um, the joy that we have in hearing each other's ideas and opinions, uh, all of that is unscripted and is genuine. And so uh, anytime he's not there or um, or I'm not uh, there with him, it's just a little bit uh, different. But with that said, I, I plan on having a great, great show and I've got some things teed up for you uh, for tonight. For those of you who are new to the program, uh, I definitely play Robin uh, to Daryl's Batman. And on this show, we're without – on this show, at least at least uh, during this particular episode, we're without Batman. So I'll do my best to, again, walk you through the subject matter uh, without our lead superhero in the mix, all right? Um, this week – this week has been a long but yet productive week for me, and I hope it's been for you as well. And before we jump into our topic, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that Brother Daryl was in Minnesota recently, and on September the 15th, Daryl gave a talk at Grace Church Chapel in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. He gave this talk on, and the topic was, uh, the impact of social justice on the gospel. Now, now the talk is still available if you missed it. Now, you can definitely check it out. In fact, we'll provide a link in the show notes for you so that you can check it out. By way of comparison, Dale usually prepares about 10 to 12 pages of notes for Just Thinking, for each one of our Just Thinking podcasts. Um, and, and for this particular talk that he did in Minnesota, he sent me 22 pages of notes to review. Now, this talk was so thorough and so well put together, I really believe it should be used as reference material for the subject. And I'd highly recommend that you get your hands on the talk and pass it around to everyone that you care about. Now, as we jump into our topic tonight, I've been noticing that there are many professional sports leagues celebrating major anniversaries. For example, the Major League Baseball is celebrating its 150th year anniversary and next year, I believe it's next year, the National Football League will celebrate 100 years of its existence. While there have been a number of powerful stories that include the game of sport, I'm realizing uh, that many of our younger listeners may not even be familiar with what happened, something very significant that happened on April 15, 1947. You see, on April 15, 1947, it was on that date that a man by the name of Jackie Robinson broke what was called the baseball color line when he started as first baseman for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, the Dodgers signed Robinson, and when they did, they heralded the end of racial segregation in professional baseball. It would be during the 10-year career of Jackie Robinson, and he would win the Rookie of the Year in 1947, and then six consecutive seasons as an All-Star from 1949 through 1954. 
Now, in addition, Robinson would go on to win the National League's Most Valuable Player Award in 1949. He was the first black player to be so honored. As well, he played in six World Series and contributed to the Dodgers' 1955 World Series championship. While many may not know all the specifics of Jackie Robinson's career, they're at least familiar with his name and the significance of what was accomplished uh, on that date in uh, 1947, April 15th. Now, a name which far fewer people may be familiar is the name Kenneth Washington. Now, Kenneth Washington was a contemporary of Jackie Robinson. In fact, history would record that both Jackie Robinson and Kenneth Washington would play on the same baseball fields as these two men both attended and played sports for UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles. Now, they did so at the exact same time. In fact, many would argue that Kenneth Washington was a better baseball player than Jackie Robinson in 1945. And interestingly enough, Kenneth Washington was a football player. You see, on the football field, Washington was nearly unstoppable. And in 1939, Washington, who played running back for the UCLA Bruins, played 580 of 600 minutes of football during the season and led the nation in scoring. This UCLA halfback set college records of 3,206 yards of total offense over his career, and he had won the Douglas Fairbanks Trophy for the best college player in the U.S., and he was named to an All-American team. He was a, he was a, a American college all-star. Now, this happened for him in August of 1940. Now, normally for a college athlete of Washington's caliber, his path from college legend to NFL stardom would be followed by endorsement deals and riches, right? I mean, you've got Kyler Murray, who was both a, a excellent in baseball and in football and went first in the draft overall. However, as a black athlete in 1939, Washington's story was much different in that six years earlier, the NFL had banned black players' entrance into their ranks. Now, the NFL as we know it kind of started at this point. Prior to that, there were a couple of black players uh, who were involved in the sport as a as kind of a, a, a club league, but not, not from a standpoint of what it meant uh, to be a part of the NFL. Now, in this new modern era of its day, the NFL as we would know it uh, with player contracts said that there would be no black players among their ranks. Now, Washington would graduate from UCLA, coach a few times. He'd play minor league football uh, on a minor league football team, and he would buy his time after World War II serving as a police officer in the Los Angeles area. Now, at the end of the war, the NFL was compelled to abandon its discriminatory policies, and the L.A. Rams, L.A. Rams, who had relocated to Los Angeles after leaving Cleveland in 1945, they were planning to move into their new L.A. Memorial Coliseum. Now, as a result of the move and taxpayers' dollars that were contributed to build the stadium, the outcry to see this policy change with regard to reversing uh, the, the issue on black players, it came from those who paid taxes and desired, really they desired to see their hometown hero have a chance at playing professional football. So on March 21st, 1946, Kenneth Robinson, 
or I'm sorry, Kenneth, <laughs> Kenneth Washington became the marquee signing. He was the first black player to sign an NFL contract in the post-war era. Now, it's important to note that the signing of Kenneth Washington actually happened one full year prior to the signing of Jackie Robinson in Major League Baseball. The, 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 the significance of that should be incredible. However, at the time, football was nowhere near the American pastime that baseball was. So the story of Kenneth Robinson was kind of hidden. I'm sorry, I keep saying Kenneth Robinson. Kenneth Washington. The story of Kenneth Washington was rather hidden. Now, Washington would have great success in sports as well as acting and other areas of his own personal life. And if you're interested, man, I'd encourage you to check out his story in greater detail. However, today, for many black athletes, professional sports are the way out of a negative upbringing or background and provide many with an opportunity for wealth and advancement. Football in particular, which was once segregated, keeping top black athletes out of its ranks, now boasts that 70% of its players are black. And they come from all walks of life, from D1 college scholarship athlete to no-name school with talent and hard work. All of them have an equal opportunity to make it onto a 53-man roster. There are 32 NFL teams with a total of 1,696 players. So for the hundreds of thousands of student athletes who believe themselves to be, quote, good enough, right, for the professional sports, for professional sports, they're rudely awakened to the reality that getting to the right school, having the right college coach, um, having the right connections, all of these things can be critical for what many, for what, for, for, for many may be the opportunity to live out lifelong dreams, right? The lifelong dream of achieving and scoring a lucrative NFL contract. Now, many of these dreamers work all of their lives to get themselves into the best position, the best condition, and to be looked upon by the best colleges and the best college coaches so that they can start that first step toward the NFL. Now, on their road to reaching their goals comes someone like Jamil Hill. Hill, uh, Jamel Hill. Now, much like the name Kenneth Washington, very few of you may be familiar with Jamil Hill. Uh, Jamil, I may be pronouncing it wrong, Jamil Hill currently serves as the staff writer for The Atlantic, where she covers sports, race, politics, and culture. Now, that's according to her byline. Now, Miss Hill, who happens to be African-American, has written a story in The Atlantic calling for black athletes to leave white colleges. In fact, her story is even titled, quote, it's time for black athletes to leave white colleges, end quote. Now, in, a piece, in the piece, she makes the arguments as to why this action is needed, and she explains where these athletes should attend school as a result of their departure. Now, what I want to do in this episode is, is somewhat of a throwback to how Daryl and I began uh, just thinking. For those of you who've been with us from the beginning or those of you who, who maybe have gone back into the archives and listened to older episodes, you might remember that Daryl and I would just grab an article, walk through the article, and, and try to do our best at exposing the faulty arguments and unbiblical thinking. So with this particular episode, I'd like to do the same thing with Ms. Hill's article uh, and examine the arguments that she puts forth as the reason for this necessary departure by black athletes. But before we get into the article, I thought we'd do a bit of biographical examination of Miss Hill. Now, my goal in examining Miss Hill is not an attempt to discredit her as a journalist. 
In fact, it looks as if she's an accomplished writer. However, I do think it's noteworthy to see if the advice Miss Hill is giving to others, which is to depart so-called white colleges, is something she was willing to do herself in an effort to reach her own goals and dreams. As I mentioned earlier, Jamel Juanita Hill is an American sports journalist who writes for the Atlantic. Now, prior to that time, Miss Hill worked for nearly 12 years for ESPN, where she held a number of positions. She wrote a column for ESPN.com, page two, and then formerly she co-hosted a very popular ESPN podcast called His and Hers with Michael Smith. In addition to sports, Miss Hill covered social uh, social uh, issues and relationship issues, along with pop culture. In June of 2013, Miss Hill succeeded uh, Jalen Rose on ESPN's two Numbers Never Lie, and in February 2017, Hill and Michael Smith became the co-host of SC6, which was the Sports Center edition that aired at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, Hill remained in that role until about February of 2018. Hill captured the attention of some when on September the 11th, 2017, she made a series of tweets critical of, the, of President Trump, calling him a white supremacist. Now, this kind of moved her into the spotlight. Hill captured the attention in violation of ESPN social media policy when she tweeted that she was very upset. Now, in this instance, she was upset not with the, not with the president, but with Jerry Jones's threat to bench any player who, quote, does anything that's disrespectful to the flag, end quote. So here on on the September 11th issue in, in 2017, it was President Trump was a white supremacist. And then following uh, shortly thereafter, uh, in violation of ESPN's social media policy, she got upset with Jerry Jones uh, based upon the fact that he didn't want anyone to do anything disrespectful to the flag. Now, Jamel Hill was no stranger to controversy and would anchor her last SC6 on February 2nd, 2018. And on October 1st, 2018, she began her work with The Atlantic and announced that she was joining the magazine as a staff writer. Now, Ms. Hill's undergraduate education was in journalism from Michigan State University, where she graduated in 1997. And Ms. Hill had numerous assignments during that time as a sports writer for the Raleigh News and Observer, uh, and later serving as a sports writer with the Detroit Free Press covering Michigan State football and basketball. Needless to say, again, Miss Hill is credentialed. Unfortunately, many of her stories would often cause her to be removed from her positions. For example, during the 2008 NBA playoffs, Hill was suspended from her post after after referencing Adolf Hitler in an article about the then NBA champion Boston Celtics and the Detroit Pistons. In an editorial describing why she could not support the Celtics, Hill wrote, quote, rooting for the Celtics is like saying Hitler was a victim. It's like hoping Gorbachev would get to uh, to the blinking red button before Reagan, end quote. Hill subsequently was suspended for one week, and she issued an apology through ESPN. Now, to Hill's credit, she stated in her apology, quote, an expression of my passion for the NBA and my hometown of Detroit, I showed very poor judgment in the words that I used, end quote. Now, 
you've got a bit of background on Jamel Hill. And I thought to turn now to her article and examine some of the things that she stated in the article so that we can see if her, the arguments that she's positing have any merit. Now, in Hill's article, again, titled, It's Time for Black Athletes to Leave White Colleges, the opening line in the title uh, posits the claim, posits a claim and then asks a question. So let me read, and I quote, They, meaning the black athlete, attract money and attention to the predominantly white universities that showcased them while HBCUs struggle. And then the question, what would happen if they collectively decided to go to black schools? End quote. Now, I realize that some in our audience may have no idea what an HBCU is, so I thought I'd give just a brief definition and then get back to the article. In short, an HBCU is an acronym for Historically Black College and Universities. Historically Black Colleges and Universities began in the mid 1800s and and were uh, very they were very this this was during a time rather when very few traditionally white colleges accepted black applicants. Now, there were only three of three colleges that accepted these students in the mid 1800s. HBCUs were developed by two things, one black ministers and two white philanthropists, primarily in the South to educate freed slaves. Now, many of these schools began in church basements and in homes. Initially, many of these schools were designed to provide primary and secondary education that had been kept away from the slaves. Later, these schools would evolve into pillars of education for blacks who attended school there. Now, currently, there, there are little more than a 100 or so just around the country, historically black college and, and colleges and universities, HBCUs, uh, again, around the country. But most of them are small. Some of them have sports programs. However, almost all of them struggle financially to some degree or another and find it difficult to sustain modern sports facilities that rival their contemporary counterparts. And that's an issue that's raised by Miss Hill. So with that as background, let me jump back into uh, the article. Miss Hill begins by telling the story of, of Kayvon Thibodeau. Now, Thibodeau is a highly ranked top recruited football player who desires to play Division I football with the hopes of making it into the NFL. Now, Kayvon visits Florida A&M. Now, Florida A&M is an HBCU historically black college university in Tallahassee. Kayvon, who would ultimately decide to take his talent to the University of Oregon, for a moment began to gush about his visit to FAMU, Florida A&M, FAMU. For, he did this for five months on social media, bringing attention to the historically black university. Now, this is where we run into the first of the presuppositions held by Ms. Hill. Quoting from the article, Ms. Hill writes, quote, ultimately, and perhaps inevitably, Thibodeau announced that he was going to one of the top football programs in the country, the University of Oregon. Nobody wants to eat McDonald's when you can have filet mignon, is how Thibodeau put it. But of course, uh, but over, I'm sorry, but over the course of five months between his visits to FAMU and his decision to enroll at Oregon, Thibodeau, who gushed about the historically black college university on social media, galvanized alumni and boosted national awareness of the institution. It was a moment of hope for HBCUs, and it should have been a moment of fear for the predominantly white institutions whose collective multi-billion dollar revenues have been built largely on the ex exertions of uncompensated black 
athletes, period, end quote. So that was from the article that uh, Miss Hill wrote. Now, now, first of all, Miss Hill's presuppositions are that a white colleges, right, uh, are, are, are a part of the problem. So her, her issue is this, that white colleges see these athletes in terms of maintaining their white power structures uh, and, and are determined that the, that the black athletes that they bring on uh, to their, their football teams are someone that they can oppress on the basis of their race. Now, here's what I want to say in fairness. While there's an argument that can be made uh, for player compensation at the, uh, of the college student athlete, this argument w- would be made without partiality to the race of the athlete. I don't even like to say race. You know how we do on this on this program. We put race in air quotes because we recognize from a biblical standpoint there's only one human race and and that's followed by multi multiple ethnicities, right? So but but my point is this, if she were going to make the argument about compensation for the student athlete, for the college student athlete, she would do so without partiality to the ethnicity, I should say it that way, of the athlete. However, Ms. Hill cannot keep herself from doing so in this instance. Furthermore, what she argues is in favor, what she argues in favor of uh, throughout the article is not for the freedom which allows the student athlete greater choice, but rather for continued subjugation, right? So she's not arguing for the, for, for the student athlete to have free choice. She's arguing that the subjugation, if she sees the uh, the school that gets this student athlete as being the oppressor, <laughs> she's arguing for continued subjugation of the athlete, but this time at the hands of black power structures, i.e. the HBCU, right? Because they're going to continue to oppress the student athlete. Simply put, if the college and university leveraging the talent of these athletes is the slave owner, then Miss Hill isn't arguing for that for the emancipation of the slave. The, which is the college student athlete. Miss Hill simply wants the slave owner to be the black slave, a black slave owner instead of a white slave owner, right? The so-called white college or university. Miss Hill goes on to argue, uh, it, it, she goes on in the article to articulate the amount of money paid uh, from collegiate athletics. Now, her argument here is more akin to an argument against capitalism as she turns to a more socialist appeal of shared wealth uh, in favor of the HBCU. Furthermore, as she demonizes what she calls white schools, you, you'd think that the players had no choice in the matter, right? These players are, are without option. They have to do what, uh, what's, what's dictated by the school. You'd think that the players didn't have uh, a choice to make in the matter, that they couldn't decide what they wanted to do. Now, I'll give Miss Hill the fact that these schools make a great deal of money from college sports. However, to attach some evil motive that must be racist in nature, as she points to ethnic disparities uh, on, on the subject, is, is it's, it's just really suspect at best, right? I say suspect because she's still not advocating for the – again, I, I'll say it again. She's still not advocating for the freedom of the player, but rather for their continued subjugation. In, in, in this instance, she'd rather that take place in the hands of black schools rather than white schools. As she brings the point home to why HBCUs uh, should be the destination for the college student, her argument begins to fall apart. And now my goal will be to point that out. And and I'll I'll take this portion very slowly because I really want you to follow. And and just so that you know, the link to her original article uh, is in the show notes. So if you go back to our show notes, you can open up her article, walk through the entirety of the article. 
and then listen to um, uh, the critique here. The first, the article, and, and I'll quote, quote, black athletes have attracted money and attention to the predominantly white universities that showcase them. Meanwhile, black colleges are struggling. Alabama's athletic department generated $174 million in the 2016-2017 school year, whereas the HBCU that generated the most money from athletics that year, Prairie View A&M, brought in less than $18 million. Beyond sports, the average HBCU endowment is only one-eighth of the average predominantly white school. Taken together, all of the HBCU endowments combined make up less than a tenth of Harvard's. Now, this let me let me stop just for a moment and say this is an important point that we'll get back to after Miss Hill makes the next point. So back to the article. I'm still quoting from the article. Quote, why should this matter to anyone beyond the administrators and alumni of the HBCUs themselves? Because black college uh, because black colleges play an important role in the creation and propagation of the black professional class, despite con- despite constituting only three percent of four year colleges in the country, HBCUs have produced 80 percent of black judges, 50 percent of black lawyers, 50 percent of black doctors, 40 percent of black engineers, 40 percent of the black members of Congress and 13 percent of the black CEOs in America today. They have also produced in this election cycle, the only black female candidate for the U.S. presidency, Kamala Harris, in a 19, she is a 1986 graduate of Howard University, end quote. Now, she, she railed off a litany of different, uh, reasons why, uh, others should care about this issue. And, and her argument is that, you know, we get all of these, we get this whole professional class of blacks, who are now contributing to, I guess, the benefit of uh, of the country. So I, I began to think about this argument, this line of reasoning, and thought we probably want to examine it for all that it's worth. So I went to look at each of these areas that she mentioned to to identify the contribution of each of these groups, lawyers, engineers, doctors, judges, congresspeople, and to then monetize their contribution and uh, to determine how much financial impact the HBCU has had. So I, I want, again, let me let me walk through this slow. So it's, I, I, I wrote these down in my notes. It says this, according to the United States District Court System, black judges represent 14% of all U.S. District Court judges. So of the 870 judges that are that are out there, black judges would then represent 121 judges. Right. So according to Miss Hill, 80 percent of these graduated from HBCUs. Well, you do the math. It's just not it's 96 judges. So I went to look up how much these judges make. And, and again, I've gotten all I, I, I grabbed the most modest estimates. An average salary for a judge is about one hundred thousand a year. Well, you multiply that by 96 judges and that comes to nine point six million dollars annually. Moving further, the U.S. Census reported that there are 33,865 African-American lawyers, 33,865 African-American lawyers. HBCUs, if they're responsible for half, that number comes to 16,900. Again, conservatively speaking, the average pay, uh, the average uh, paycheck 
for a, a lawyer is about 141000 a year. You multiply that by 16900 you come up with $2.3 billion in salary annually. So let me go back. Black judges, $9.6 million annually. Again, that's the HBCU's impact. Black lawyers, HBCU impact, $2.3 billion in salary. Recently, study, a recent study published by the American College of Physicians suggests that 3.8% of all practicing physicians are black. Now, according to Ms. Hill, HBCUs are responsible for 50% of those doctors. There are nearly 1.1 million doctors in practice. And so if 3.8% in round numbers, 33,000 doctors. Half of them coming from HBCUs, 16,500. Let's, let's say that a doctor, now we won't take into account any specialty. Uh, we'll just say the average general practitioner makes modestly about $150,000 a year. Well, the buying power of 16500 would come to about $2.4 billion in annual salary. As of 2017, blacks represent 5.4% of all those graduating from engineering school. Now, if we take that number and cut it in half just to be conservative, just from a standpoint of those that might be employed, and, and we cut it to 2.7%, let's say 2.7% of the engineers are black. The, the, the Bureau of Statistics says that there are approximately 1.6 million engineers employed in the United States. Well, that would mean that 43,000 of them were black and that 40% of those or 17,280 would come from an HBCU. Conservatively speaking, the average salary for an engineer is $85,570. Black engineers graduating from HBCUs, that represents $1.5 billion in salary per year. Uh, lastly, congressmen. Uh, there are 153 members of Congress that are black. 40% of those comes to 61 members from HBCUs. At an average of 174000 a year, that represents $10.6 million annually. Now, I went to go crunch the numbers for black CEOs, but here's what I found. If you do just the Fortune 500 alone, they, the claim is that there are only three black CEOs. But if you begin to look across the board to all companies – there, there are a large number of, of CEOs across the board. My thought was, let's throw the CEOs out for this example. So let me summarize. Black judges graduating from HBCUs represent $9.6 million annually. Black lawyers graduating from HBCUs represent $2.3 billion annually. Black doctors graduating have graduated from HBCUs represent $2.4 billion annually. Black engineers who have graduated from HBCUs represent $1.4 billion annually. And black congressmen who have graduated from HBCUs represents $10.6 million annually. Now, this goes for a combined total of $6.1 billion every single year in payout. Now, if all of these professionals who have had the benefit of an education from an HBCU would give just 5% of their salary to an HBCU, this amount would represent $306 million per year. Now, the comparison that was made was Alabama uh, the amount of money that they got into their uh, th their football program it was 174 million. I, I've just presented a case where 306 million dollars 
would dwarf the size of what of the money that was given to the Alabama Athletic Department. It would dwarf the size from 174 to 306. Furthermore, if they leveraged their influence with others with whom they've met and have con- and, and have contact with, they would eradicate the financial problem found in the HBCUs and draw more talent to these programs that Miss Hill seems to suggest are losing to bigger schools with better facilities. Now, Miss Hill is not interested in solving the problem. Not at all. She's impressed with herself. She's impressed with pointing out a problem. And as she continues to make her case for why Americans, America, Americans need to need HBCUs, it would seem that not even the people that she mentioned who graduated from those schools are believing in the schools to the degree that they're willing to put their money where their mouth is on this issue. I, I mentioned earlier Kamala Harris. Well, Miss Hill mentioned Kamala Harris running for president. It's interesting that Miss Harris is not interested in rallying the folks uh, around her that have graduated from HBCUs in an effort to give money to the, the, the schools. What she's interested in is she's interested in raising your and my tax dollars as she has promised billions of dollars in funds and taxpayer monies that she's going to take from you and I in an effort to give to her favorite HBCU. What I find ironic is that Miss Hill herself didn't attend an HBCU, but rather when it came to her own education, she chose Michigan State University, which was hardly a, a bastion of ethnic diversity. While she's free to make her, make the choice of her own, right, with regarding to what school that she saw fit to obtain her goals, she would rather cast disdain on those who do not follow her instruction to leave the so-called white school, quote unquote white school, in favor of an HBCU. Now, Miss Hill goes on to make the case for why America needs HBCUs. She then def- de- she then uh, she she diffuses the issue right when she talks about this racial equity gap in her article. She she uses the idea of a racial equity a racial wealth gap rather, uh, and and talks about the median white household income and the median black household income. Um, never does she mention the skyrocketing amounts of single motherhood in the black community or the fatherlessness that are placing more of our wealth, more of our dollars into uh, the, the or rather. Or, or, let me let me let me say that again. Never does she mention that the skyrocketing amount of single motherhood in the black community or the fatherlessness that's there is placing more of our wealth producing black men into prison. However, she hopes that her arguments strike a nerve w- with white guilt that that seems to be permeating our culture at the moment. Next, the next portion of her comments I found incredibly interesting as well. Miss Hill says this, and I quote, Moreover, some black students feel safer both physically and emotionally on an HBCU campus, all, uh, all the more so as racial tensions have risen in recent years. Navigating a predominantly white campus as a black student can feel isolating even for athletes. Now, end quote. Now, what's what's interesting about the comment is that it lacks any basis in reality. In fact, there was an article that was written uh, for Inside Higher Education. The headline reads, quote, string of shootings at black colleges, end quote. The opening line says this. No college is immune from gun violence, but historically black colleges and universities may face unique challenges. 
In the article written by Josh Logue, he goes on to discuss six shootings at HBCUs and describes how many of these schools are located in urban areas and are particularly vulnerable to gun violence, either by the students on campus or by people in the nearby communities. Writing for the article, Josh explains, quote, most HBCUs around the country are located in predominantly urban areas and have unusually high levels of crime, he said. But even more significant than than that are the institution's resource and staffing levels. Those are the two things that impact this the most, end quote. Now, the article goes on in great detail to discuss some of the challenges that HBCUs face uniquely regarding violence that often mirrors what happens in urban communities around the country. Now, again, my goal is not to not to be disparaging of HBCUs in any way, shape or form, but to say, let's look at what's really happening. Let's look at reality and let's not sugarcoat things as if there are no violence and people can feel safe in any environment. Any any college campus is a space or place where something uh, dangerous can happen. Uh, but to but to isolate that and to make the claim or at least to infer the idea that if a student goes to a white campus, uh, there's more uh cause for harm or there's more uh, uh, kinds of problems that they're going to run into, I think is, is, is problematic and, and the facts just simply don't bear that out. Jamel Hill exposes her real motives by what she says further down in the article. She says this, quote, but what if young black athletes were, f- were to force a change? She says this, NCAA athletes generate billions of profit annually and black athletes are, are are the prized workforce, reads the mission statement of an organization called Power Motives Initiative. However, African Americans are not stakeholders at predominantly white universities and corporations that benefit from our talent. This system must be disrupted to redirect the stream of wealth. Now, I, I love how they've co-opted the talent of these young men, uh, and, and I find it interesting when they say our talent our talent it's our talent furthermore the marxian aspect of the statement that reads this quote the system must be disrupted to redirect the stream of wealth end quote well no one is interested in the players themselves definitely definitely not miss hill they are interested in generating wealth for their own power most of these student student athletes are far too smart to fall into the trap set by social justicians like hill Jamel ends the article by quoting from the likes of Beyonce, uh, LeBron James, and recently slain rapper Nipsey Hussle, who have argued that African Americans should be using their talents not to enrich themselves, but to help strengthen and empower black communities. And and so so let me let me give a quote from the article. It says, "Quote, uh, or rather, this is a, this is a quote from from Jay Z: Gentrify your own hood before these people." do it i i i don't know how (laughs) these people i don't know how you could be any more clear about the racial aspect uh the 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 racism inherent in the idea that you've got to do something for yourself before white people there's there's a presupposition that 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 whites are the enemy here and that we've got to take care of of ourselves based upon and we and we make that decision on the basis of the amount of melanin in our quote unquote community. 
Right. This is this is absolutely ridiculous. Imagine someone white making a similarly racist statement and getting away with it. I'd argue that you you can't. I'd argue that you you can't because if someone if someone white said we've got to take care of our own uh, communities before these black people come in here and they were they were as popular as as a Jay Z. Uh, they would be they would be pulled from the ranks of their particular profession. They would be uh, shouted off of the rooftop uh, for whatever it is uh, that they that they uh, that they were doing. Now, in, in typical racist fashion, Jamil closes her article with a parting shot. She says, "Quote: If promising black student athletes choose to attend HBCUs in greater numbers, they would at a minimum." Bring some welcomed attention and money to beleaguered black colleges, which invest in black people when there were, which invested rather in black people when there was no athletic profit to reap. More revolutionary, perhaps they could be, they could disrupt the reign of an amateur sports system that uses the labor of black folks to make white folks rich. End quote. I, I don't know what could be more clear uh, about that. The, the, the presuppositions that are a part of her thought process, uh, the, the, the danger that, quote unquote, white people pose to blacks, the, the idea, uh, the, 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 the categories of oppressor and the oppressed uh, in, an, in an environment where everyone is free to make their own choice. The college student athlete can make his or her own choice. Um, the, the, uh, the school can make their choice and some of them make, make, make decisions that they don't want a particular student athlete. Uh, now with, with, with things like the, uh, the transfer portal, someone, an, a student athlete can go to a particular school and decide he doesn't like it there, transfer, uh, and, and allow another school to, uh, decide to bring him in as a part of their, uh, as a part of their, their, uh, their program. And again, it's not as if these students don't get something out of it. Now, you may you, you, you may make the argument, and I, and I think it's a fair argument. It's a fair debate to have whether or not these student-athletes should be given more for what they do. They're given a free education. Uh, they're given all kinds of resources and helps so that they can, uh, c- can graduate. Uh, they're provided the best of, of medical care and treatment. They're provided – I mean, there's a lot of things that they're provided. What I'm not arguing, I'm not arguing that – the compensation that they get for what they do is equitable. I am arguing that whatever that situation is, they have voluntarily decided to enter into that kind of agreement. And the point of their doing so is for the purpose of them securing an NFL contract. Again, I could go back and crunch the numbers on the numbers of black players in the NFL that have benefited from what the schools did for them. Uh, we could look at the amount of money that it brought in in that instance and, and look at the wealth generated and created for a whole section of society of black athlete, uh, that, that are now doing endorsement deals and having shoe, shoe, you know, shoe companies, uh, write them checks by, for the use of their name and image and likeness. I mean, there's all kinds of, of numbers that we could grab at that, but, but, but to try to establish or to set things up as if, these quote unquote white schools are buying slaves off the slave market and are forcing them into their school system in an effort to work the land so that they can get wealthy uh, is just it's it's just foolishness. It's just foolishness. And fortunately, I really do believe that these athletes 
are just, they're not up for it. They're absolutely not buying it. They're absolutely not, not buying it. At the end of the day, I don't blame Jamel Hill for her stereotypically racist agenda regarding black athletes. For, for us who are believers in Christ, it's important to recognize that we have, that, that, that we have more value than that simply of the color of our skin. As image bearers of God, uh, created in his image and likeness, deserving of distinct value, dignity, and worth, if we operate our lives on the basis of the level of melanin in our skin, we will oftentimes, we will always, I'd argue, find ourselves on the short end of the stick. But that's what Jamel Hill and those who follow her ideological position have done. They've categorized people, put them in categories and have have made this want them to make decisions for their lives on the basis of 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 that kind of a setup. It's it's foolishness. Black athletes, I say, should do what is in their best interest for their future in the same way that Jamel Hill did when she chose to go to Michigan State for her degree. They, they should they should be able to they should have the same freedom of choice to say without being without without people like Jamel shaming them or 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 calling into account uh, their 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 racial authenticity. Right. Whether or not they're woke because they've made a decision to go. To, for example, that that uh, that uh, Kevon uh, uh, Thibodeau, um, Kevon Thibodeau decided to go to Oregon. Now, he's he's now not woke. He's not a part of the woke class because. He made a decision to to do what was in his best interest for his family at the time. And he made that decision not on the basis of, of, of the racial organization, not on the racial makeup of the organization that he'd be a part of, but on the basis of, the, of whatever decision he made, whatever, whatever uh, benchmarks that he had for making the right choice. And he should be applauded and encouraged for that reason. The tribalism that our article and genders is not shocking. However, I do believe that Miss Hill intends for it to shock you so that you'll pay attention to her voice. Now, again, while I'm, I'm neither shocked nor surprised, my hope and goal was simply to make you aware of the fact that people like Miss Hill are out there uh, and they're making very weak arguments for what they're trying to do. I, 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 I provided a a blueprint. I didn't simply identify a problem. I provided a, a blueprint for how Miss Hill and others who are interested in saving the HBCUs can go about it. She rattled off a number of different um, areas where blacks have succeeded because of their education at an HBCU. And I calculated that their earning power on a conservative basis represents $6.2 billion annually. All Miss Hill and others who agree with her would have to do is identify those people, tell them what their what her goals are. And I, I, I would almost I'd argue in the in the affirmative that if she did and they and they g- gathered those influential power brokers who've graduated from HBCUs together in a room and began going to the professional um, you know, sports teams and saying, here's what we want you to do. I bet they'd get a flood of money. I bet they'd get a ton of money. But that's not what they want to do. They would much rather go to the person who does not have that kind of wealth, who does not have that level of power, and tell them that they must now leave the college of their choosing, subject themselves 
to the HBCU and begin to work in the same way that 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 they argued uh, that that the student athlete shouldn't be working for a school in the first place. It's just it's just insane. My goal, again, was simply to make you aware that that's out there, that people like Jamel Hill are doing what they do. Uh, we who hold a biblical worldview uh, must uh, look past this kind of thing, must be aware of it, cognizant of it. But uh, we need to argue from a biblical perspective, from a biblical worldview. I want to just thank you for joining me for this edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. Join us again next week where I'm hoping to have my partner back and we'll be back here, God willing, to uh, to enjoy another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast.